If you have Bibles, uh, we're going to be in James chapter 4 today. James chapter 4, you'll find that if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles uh, on page 1012. I was, uh, I know a number of you got to join us uh, this Wednesday night. I was really uh, grateful and encouraged by our time together Wednesday evening uh, for our Ash Wednesday service. Uh, That day, uh, that service, for me in recent years, has become increasingly meaningful. Uh, And the the imposition of ashes uh, was especially a a meaningful addition that we incorporated this year. Um, It is a little overwhelming and certainly humbling uh, to look each of you in the eyes as you came forward to receive the ashes and to remind you, looking into your eyes, uh, that you are going to die someday. That's, that's a humbling thought. And to consider also in that same moment that is, if God is uh, kind enough to give us some years together, uh, that I very well might be the one who puts you in the ground. Or you might very well be the one who puts me in the ground someday. Uh, the ashes... Uh, were meaningful to me in that way, which is what the whole purpose of the ashes are, they also, for me, had an additional uh, layer of meaning. Because after mixing them uh, and then putting them on your foreheads with my thumb, with mixing them with my fingers this week, the stain of that ash lingered on my fingers for multiple days afterward. Um, the ashes got into my skin. They got under my fingernails. They got into, I'm sure I don't know the terminology for this, but like the little like skin that overhangs your fingernail, they got kind of wedged down in there. And I assure you, I washed my hands many times. Uh, as much as I've washed my hands, if you were to really look closely this morning, you would still see some remnants of that ash from Wednesday. Back in James chapter 1, at the end of that chapter, uh, James calls Christians to practice true religion. And he says there that true religion involves at least these three things. And then he unpacks them through the rest of the letter. He says the three things are to tame the tongue, to care for the oppressed and the marginalized peoples of our society, and third, to keep yourself unstained from the world. The stain uh, of that black ash lingering on my fingers this week has been a reminder, a very tangible reminder for me, of how easy it is to carry around the stain of the world. To, without even being uh, aware of it, at times, to absorb the stain of the world around us. And because there's a real appeal to it, because there's something about the sin and that stain that's still very enticing to me, to let that stain linger uh, and to indulge it. In chapter 4, James picks up on this idea of keeping ourselves unstained from the world, and he warns us, he warns his readers, against the dangers of worldliness. And in very passionate and strong language, as you'll hear in just a moment, he calls God's people to repent and to pursue holiness. So this text, James 4, it's, it's always relevant for our lives. But it's particularly appropriate for us as we have just in the last few days begun the season of Lent. And as we, during the season, remember our mortality, uh, we also remember that our mortality is a consequence of sin, And so Lent becomes this invitation for us to pursue a renewed repentance and renewed faithfulness. Uh, It's an invitation for us to perceive, maybe in a deeper way, where we remained uh, stained and influenced by the world. Uh, Where there's more work to be done, ultimately work that God has to do as he transforms our hearts, but work that we are very active and actively involved in. It's an invitation for us to reflect on how we need God to 
root out that sin, to cleanse us from the stain of it so as to not live this kind of compromised, conflicted, double-minded kind of life that James has been warning us about throughout this letter. So this morning and this whole season of Lent, my prayer for us is that God, by his word uh, and by his spirit, would expose our sin and would lead us into repentance and renewed faithfulness to him. So listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is God's word. They pray for us. Almighty and gracious Father, the true understanding of your holy word helps us to grow into the fullness of the salvation you have so freely offered in Christ. Grant to all of us that our hearts, being freed from worldly affairs, may hear and grasp your holy word, with all diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand your gracious will and cherish it and live by it with all earnestness and do all of these things to your praise and honor. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. So James talks about a lot in this passage, but he's really, through it all, calling our attention to three things. The source of our stain, the source of our salvation, and why holiness can only come through humility the source of our stain, the source of our salvation, and why holiness can only come through humility. So first, let's talk about the source of our stain. Why are things not the way that they're meant to be? Why are things in this world not the way that they're meant to be? Many of you have grown up uh, as Christians or in and around the church, and so you would rightly answer, the summary answer to that question is that sin is the reason why things are not the way they're meant to be. But if we are to survey the scriptures, and particularly the New Testament, we we will find that we can break down sin into three different forces that are opposed to God, what is sometimes known as the three enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. If you've been um, following along, as I know many of you have, with Jen Wilkins' study through the book of James, uh, she highlights these same things. Which let me just take a a little moment to, um, to plug that study and to encourage you to jump into it. Uh, not only for those of you as women who are studying it together through women's Bible studies this semester, 
Uh, that is a fantastic resource for anyone who wants to do a deeper dive into the book of James. It's been beneficial to me, uh, as her other studies have been in the past. And so I would encourage you, even if you're not in a women's study looking at that book right now, uh, all of the resources for it are available for free online. I'd be happy to get you the information about that. It's just a really well done uh, study of the book of James. In this passage, though, James refers to all three of these enemies of the soul. Maybe you heard it as we read. In verses 4 and 5, there's the world. He says, Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God, and whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? In Scripture, the word world is is a shorthand way of referring to uh, people and societies and cultures who are at present persisting in their rebellion against God. So all of humanity, the story of the world, all of humanity has rebelled uh, against God. The world are the ones who are persisting in that. They're the ones who are resistant to God and his saving work. And in an ongoing way, the world is one of the sources of our stain, of the sin that we find in our lives. The world lies to us. Uh, There are false narratives in this world about where meaning and purpose in life come from, or if there even is any. Uh, There are lies about uh, what truly satisfies in this life. There's also temptation in the world. There's opportunities to participate in that ongoing rebellion against God. And James is saying here, we cannot be friends with both God and the world. Like we talked about this fall as we looked at the different aspects of liturgy in our service, we we will always be formed increasingly into the image of whatever it is we devote ourselves to, whoever else we are, uh, whatever friendship we are devoting ourselves to. And so if we are devoted to the world, we will, by definition, be opposed to God and being formed more into the image of the world rather than in the image of God. Then down in verse 7, James refers to the devil. He says in verse 7, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So another source of our stain is Satan and the forces of evil. The one who, as Jesus says in John chapter 10, came to steal and to kill and to destroy. And contrary to one of those false narratives of the world that just rules out de facto anything supernatural, Scripture points not only to the existence, but the very active work of spiritual forces of evil in our world. And though we might not ever see that with our own eyes, the presence of spiritual forces of evil in this battle that rages with them and God emerges all the time around us in the deception, in the accusation, in the condemnation that we feel and carry around with us that other people do, in the lies that are believed. So this, too, is part of the source of our stain. And that's because Satan, I don't know if you've ever thought of it in this stark of terms, Satan hates you. He hates you. He hates the people of God, and he wants to destroy you. And as a defeated foe, he rages against you. When Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished. Uh, And when, three days later, he rose again from the dead, that was the decisive victory over Satan and sin and death. But our full realization of that and Satan's full defeat, final defeat, isn't until Christ comes again. And so in the meantime, as one who knows his sure end, Satan rages against the people of God as only a defeated foe does. It's like Germany after D-Day but before VE Day, they knew the war had taken a turn and that it was over for them. But the policy changed. Blow up all the bridges, kill everybody, take as much and as many down with you as you can before the time runs out. 
So James says we must be on our guard. We must resist Satan's lies and his deceit and his accusation and his condemnation. In a different letter, a contemporary of James, the apostle Peter, he says that Satan prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour. So he's a defeated foe, but he's a powerful one. And his rage and his hatred for God and God's people, that makes him dangerous. So we can't afford to be ignorant of him. We can't afford to be ignorant of his schemes. We must be on our guard and ready to resist. There's the world, there's the devil. You perhaps are noticing that I've gone out of order. Because actually the main source of our stain shows up right at the opening verses of this passage. It's the flesh. What's the flesh? The flesh is our sinful nature. As James refers to it here, it's the passions and desires in us that do not honor and glorify God. And here's the really critical thing for us to see in James chapter 4. The world and the devil, they're real. Uh, They're powerful sources of enmity with God. They're real sources of the stain of our sin. But as James says here, what is it that causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? That your flesh, the sinful passions in you, remain at war with the new creation that you are in Christ and those desires that you now have to glorify God. There's that war that continues on. And this is really important. This letter, the entire letter of James, is written to Christians. And that's important because it's not that this war only rages in people before they come to faith in Jesus. In fact, when you come to faith in Jesus is when the real battle begins. Before you believe, there's no conflicted desire in you. You have no desire to glorify God with your life. And so you can be happy, uh, you can be completely content and not feel conflicted at all. The presence of this conflict is so discouraging. If you've been a Christian for a long time and you've ever had that thought to yourself where you're like, why is that still an issue for me? Why can I not be rid of this sin that has just been part of my life for years or decades? It's discouraging. But we have to see that underneath that, there's something encouraging about the conflict. And that that conflict would not be there if you did not have something new in your life that desired to glorify God. The presence of that conflict, yes, it's discouraging, and I feel that with you. It's encouraging to know that you, it's there because you have awoken to the disparity of the desires to glorify God versus the sinful nature. But now the real fight starts. James's point here, our own flesh, in, in, including these other things, but our own flesh is the root cause of our sin. It's the primary cause of our sin. That Satan is an enemy of our soul who seeks to devour us, but ultimately, Satan tempts us to indulge the passions and desires that are already present in our hearts. And the world is a tough atmosphere in which to be faithful to God. That's absolutely true. But ultimately, the world is just a venue in which we give expression to those warped and wicked passions and desires that already exist in our hearts. So ultimately, think of it this way. The world is just me and you apart from the intervening mercy of God. That's what the world is. Forces opposed to God and his reign. Well, that's me and you apart from the intervening mercy of God. I've used this illustration before, but it's so on point that I will probably use it many times over. In the early 20th century, a British newspaper called The Times asked different authors to write in and answer this question. What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? 
And out of all the responses that they received, a hundred years later, the one that's remembered came from a man named G.K. Chesterton, who in response to that question wrote simply, shortest response they received, Dear sirs, I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. And I share that with you this morning to say, make this a part of your grid during the Lenten season. Don't pass the blame for sin. Yes, Satan rages against your soul. Yes, the world is a difficult place. Don't pass the blame for sin. Own your sin. And not only your individual sin, but also the sin that exists in this world. The sin that we are complicit in, that we are actually, when we step back, part of the problem. Part of what God has to redeem. If that's the source of our stand, and second, let's talk about the source of our salvation. And listen to how a New Testament scholar named Douglas Moo summarizes this particular passage in James. He says this. This first part of James 4 is, quote, a passionate summons to turn away from worldly ways and to submit yourselves wholeheartedly once again to our gracious but jealous God. In that summary, Douglas Moo puts his finger on how James describes the source of our salvation, that God is gracious but jealous. Gracious but jealous. In other words, the source of our salvation is God's jealous love and his inexhaustible grace. We considered actually this same passage on Wednesday night for a few moments during our Ash Wednesday service. We spent the majority of our time on this idea. So I would encourage you, if you have 15 minutes sometime this next week, to go back uh, and listen to that. But I want to touch on it again for just a few moments this morning. Here's the big idea. We all have, uh, in, in scriptures, we have these different pictures and roles of who God is. Some of those roles are powerful, but less personal. So God is creator, um, God is king, God is sustainer. Those are powerful, but less personal roles. Others, though, are immensely personal intimate, that God is father, that God is friend, and that God is lover, that God is described in the Bible as a groom, and his people are described as his beloved bride. And in conjunction with these different roles, these different images for who God is, we gain a a multifaceted understanding of what sin is. So God is creator. So one definition of sin is sin is to live out of line with the good design of God. God is also king. So another lens on sin is that sin is treason against our sovereign. But God is also lover. And so sin is also characterized in scripture as adultery. It's described in scripture as an affair where instead of remaining faithful and devoted to the one who has covenanted to love us, we devote ourselves to lesser loves. And that's why drawing on imagery that's employed, especially in the Old Testament, but also by Jesus in the New, James says, we are an adulterous people. Now, when, when we're in that scenario, when you and I are the jilted lover, when we're the estranged friend, how might we respond Often, and this is understandable, we respond in those moments by turning away from the one who has hurt us. The relationship feels too painful now to stay engaged in. And repairing that relationship feels hopeless. But God doesn't respond that way. And friends, our salvation rests on that reality. Because instead of that, instead of turning away, God responds with jealous love, meaning that he loves us too much to let sin have the final word on our relationship. 
which means he loves you too much. He's jealous for you that he won't leave the relationship broken like that, but he will come after you. He will come after and bring back the adulterous people. He will come after and bring back the estranged friends. And in addition to jealous love, God responds with inexhaustible grace. So think about this. The more human beings add their sin to the collective sinfulness of the world, the more human beings there are, which is many over recent centuries. And the longer that each of us lives, and in this conflicted fight between our new self in Christ and our sin nature, continues to sin and add to the collective sin that exists in the world. And the more we start to perceive how pervasive sin really is in each and every one of us, the more we start to see how inexhaustible the grace of God is. That he gives more grace, as James says here. He just keeps offering more grace that overcomes that new sin, that overcomes the the collective sin that just keeps growing and growing. He keeps offering more grace to overcome not only our sin, but the sin of the world. And the pinnacle of God's jealous love and his inexhaustible grace is found in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is how he buys us back. That is how he keeps on pouring out his grace to us without contradicting himself, without contradicting his holiness and his righteousness. That's how, in spite of our faithfulness, unfaithfulness, God can remain faithful to both his good and perfect nature and the covenant that he made to love us. Like we sang together Wednesday night in the song, Lord Have Mercy, we have no other Savior. We have no other Savior. And but for the jealous love and inexhaustible grace of God, the world, the devil, and the flesh would be our utter ruin. But the good news is this, that in Christ, God responds to our unfaithfulness, our stain, with words like this from the book of Hosea, chapter 14. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them Freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. That's the salvation that God offers through his jealous love and his inexhaustible grace. Now, once he's laid out both the source of our stain and the source of our salvation, the third thing that James speaks to in this text is how holiness, our holiness, comes through humility, and it only can come through humility. So you've probably noticed this uh, as we've been walking through the study in James together. If you've been studying James through Jen Wilkins' study, I'm sure you've seen it there too. Um, There are a lot of commands in the book of James. Are there not? There's a lot of commands. There are a lot of imperatives, all the stuff to do. Even we called the series Hear and Do because the emphasis is on how active we're called to be in our faith. There's a lot of commands in this text. This text is no different. Verses 4 through 12 especially contain one of the most strongly worded calls to repentance and holiness in all of the New Testament. Listen to some of the commands in there. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, be wretched, mourn, weep, and humble yourselves. And we're actually meant to do all of those things. It's not just suggestions or advice that James is throwing out there. They're commands. All of these things are part of faithfulness in the Christian life. 
But there's a really important difference between the gospel, between Christianity, and any other program for self-improvement or being an effective force for good in the world. And we see it, the foundational verse is verse 6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the overarching truth that frames all of these commandments to be a people of repentance and holiness. A New Testament professor named Dan Doriani calls this verse and this part of James the gospel of James. Because here we see this distinctive truth that unlike other religions, unlike other worldviews, the foundation of Christianity is not keeping these commands but in receiving grace from God. That it's not in what you and I are able to do, but what God alone can offer and does offer to those who humbly acknowledge their deep need. Real repentance and real holiness can only ever come through that kind of humility. Because otherwise, our efforts in keeping commands, in pursuing holiness, only further entrench us in sin. They only further entrench us in pride, which is the very thing, James says, that God is opposing. Because God opposes the proud, because God gives grace to the humble, you and I will spiral in one of two directions. You and I will spiral either into life or into death. The death spiral is to keep trying to live your life proud. Keep trying to live your life capable and competent. Keep trying to live your life independently. Keep patting yourself on the back for how well you're doing. And when when you're not doing well, keep doubling down and just trying to improve yourself. Because God opposes the proud, that kind of life will cut you off from the transforming grace of God. In our arrogance, in our overconfidence, when we respond by working harder and harder to earn something, we end up working against the fabric of the story of God. We end up trying harder and harder to earn something that cannot be earned. And tragically, the better we do at that, the better our performance is in that, the more entrenched in pride we become. And down the death spiral we go. But when the weight of all of these commands in the book of James, when that crushes you, when that crushes us, when it cuts you off at the knees, you fail and fall short, and rather than double down on your efforts, you look instead to Jesus. When you recognize that we cannot possibly perfectly follow these commands, but that God in Christ can and has, that's how we find ourselves on the spiral into life. That is what sweeps us up into the inexhaustible grace of God. And in that grace, then, we set out again in this pursuit of holiness and faithfulness. So I hope you heard this bookend about humility in this text as I read it. In verse 6, James says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then down in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So think about this. Even the command to humble yourselves requires the grace of God. Even the command to humble yourself requires the grace of God. That's the life spiral. Use the grace that you've been given by God to humble yourself more. And in response to that humility, you'll be given even more grace from God. Holiness only comes through humility. That's true of our lives individually. It's also evidenced uh, in our relationships with other people. And that's where James concludes this passage in verses 11 and 12. That apart from this kind of humility, our efforts at keeping these commands will make us and will only make us 
judgmental toward other people. It will make us attempt to ourselves take the place of God, which really is the essence of sin itself. The worst kind of pride, the worst kind of rejection of God is attempting to be God yourself. To elevate yourself to the place that only God can occupy, that place of judge. The pursuit of holiness without humility, therefore, can only further saturate us in this stain of sin. But when we are convinced and convicted of our own adulterous tendencies, of our own tendencies to spurn and reject the love of God, and when we then see this jealous love, this inexhaustible grace from God that comes after us anyway, that is what will humble us to the point where God has to be God because only God can be God, and we cannot. And that's when we pursue holiness in a way that actually leads to holiness. Submitted to God, drawing near to God, dependent on the grace of God, or in a word, humbly. So I'll close with this this morning. Lent, as I know many of you are aware, is a season where we're given this renewed call into repentance and faithfulness and holiness. But I'll say this, only this paradigm, what James lays out here, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, only that paradigm will free you to fully invest yourself in the season of Lent. Because if you have to earn a standing with God, you're going to minimize every aspect of sin that remains in your flesh. You're going to write that off as mistakes. You're going to write that off as a quirk. You're going to write that off to your personality. You'll blame Satan. You know, the devil made you do it. It's the devil's fault. Instead of taking responsibility yourself, you'll locate the real problems of the world out there rather than in here. That is the stuff that stays to us, that stains us and sticks to our fingers like the black ash stuck to my fingers this week. And apart from this paradigm, we will keep trying to silence and to deflect the sin that's in our heart rather than doing what we're meant to do and bring it into the light where that sin goes to die and where life and health and healing is found. So church, because he gives more grace, because God's jealous love is your salvation, you are free to be honest about your sin. You're free to be honest about your sin, and I invite you into that during this Lenten season. This ongoing humility, humbling yourself so that God gives you more grace, so that you can humble yourself, so that God gives you more grace. That is the spiral into life. That is the road to eternal exaltation by God. Humble yourself, and he will lift you up. So this Lent, pursue repentance, pursue holiness in this grace that God provides. And as we look to Jesus, may it be true of us as it was for the psalmist in Psalm 139. May God search us and know us. May God expose and root out our deep-seated and besetting sins. And may God lead us in the way everlasting. Amen. We pray for us. God, we do pray that you would, because you are gracious, invite us out of our sin and into the light. We pray that you would, as we begin Lent together, help us not to minimize our sin. Help us not to write it off. Help us not to blame shift. Help us to own the sin that remains in us, this sinful nature, these passions and desires that war against our deeper desire to glorify you. 
and bring those out into the light, expose them so that you might rip them out by the root. You might heal us. And as we come to this table, we're reminded each and every week that you give more grace. That as we have given ourselves to self-absorption, that we have given ourselves to other lesser loves this week, that there remains for us, and we come back to it every week at this table, the inexhaustible well of your grace. And so we come this morning in faith, knowing how desperately we need this. We also come this morning in joy because this is why you came into the world, that in your jealous love for us, you would not let sin have the final word. And we're grateful for that because that's our salvation. So we come in the hope of what you have accomplished in Christ, what you are continuing to accomplish through Christ in us and in this world. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.